0: And that China does have a very clear strategic objective to become the primary power in East Asia and the Western Pacific. So, you know, you took Hillary Clinton, for example, and, say, John McCain as a quintessential classic Republican. You couldn't put a cigarette paper between them on their view of how America should sustain its leadership globally, including in Asia. But Donald Trump just proved that you don't have to sign up to that to become elected. If we can't depend on the United States, can we defend ourselves? I would end up with a Navy that has a lot more submarines than we are planning at the
1: moment. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham, and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by policyforum.net and the National Security College at the ANU. Now, this is a special edition of the NATSEC pod, and I got to say, it's a little bit of a fanboy moment for me as well. When I got out of the army in the early 2000s and I started uh, studying at university and focusing on international relations, there was one voice that was quite dominant on the TV and the airwaves talking about geopolitical and strategic issues. And it was Professor Hugh White from the ANU. And I was fairly young or fairly green at that point in time. And I was the guy in the room that as soon as Hugh would come on TV, I'd be like, "The shh, the guru's on TV. So now I have Professor Hugh White in the studio. Thanks for joining us, Hugh. Christian, great pleasure to be with you. Hopefully, I suitably embarrassed you with that, uh, you that introduction. You
0: certainly did. Yes, well done. <laughs> Excellent. So,
1: Hugh is a professor of strategic studies here at the ANU, where his work primarily focuses on Australian strategic and defence policy, Asia-Pacific security issues, and global strategic affairs, especially as they influence Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Uh, He's served as an intelligence analyst with uh, the Office of National Assessments, which is Australia's peak intelligence body that reports to the Prime Minister, taking in all of the intelligence gathered across Australia's intelligence community. He was also a journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald and an advisor on the staffs of the Defence Minister Kim Beasley and the Prime Minister Bob Hawke, and was a senior official in the Department of Defence, where from 1995 to 2000, he was the Deputy Secretary for Strategy and Intelligence. He was also the first director of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. This is an organisation that was developed by the Howard Government, Government to be able to provide independent strategic analysis to government. So thanks for joining us today, Hugh. Um, you've just released your book, How to Defend Australia. And I believe you've actually just come back from long service leave where you spent time in France. And I can only assume that given in your book that you're suggesting that we scrap our sub deal with France, that was a strategic decision on your part to holiday in the, in the country before you released your book.
0: Well, more tactical than strategic, but uh, yes, it probably wouldn't. Uh, there'll be parts of the book that aren't very well received in France. Although at one point in the book, I am quite complimentary about French defense policy and how much capability they get for the money they spend. So maybe that'll soften the blow a bit and they'll let me back in next time I want to go.
1: Excellent. So- the book makes no small argument, and as an old infantry soldier, I voice a requisite level of offence on what you say about the army and throw in the standard lines of bloody civvies and whatnot. It was released this week, and as expected, it's created a lot of discussion. Uh, at first blush, how do you feel it's being received and how your argument is being viewed by the general public and all of us pundits?
0: Uh, well, look, so far I'm very pleased with the response. It's not that uh, people have come out and, and universally agree with everything I've said, of course they haven't, but I think they have accepted the book as an attempt to make a serious contribution to a very serious debate, which I think we need to have, uh, and uh, I didn't uh, expect more than that I'd be able to contribute to that debate, and so far, on the basis of a couple of days' evidence, I think uh, I seem to have succeeded in that. So, so far, so good.
1: Yeah, there's definitely a lot of interest in it, and for me, there's two major elements to this book. One is the argument that Australia is going to have to fend for itself, as as the US shrinks back from the face of a giant and growing China. Uh, And two, that Australia will have to fend for itself, so here's how we should do it. I would like to structure the discussion similarly and start with your forecast for the region. You may have missed it, but the Chinese Communist Party says that it doesn't want to seek regional hegemony. It respects everybody else's sovereignty and won't interfere in anyone's domestic issues. Are you not convinced by this?
0: No, I'm not convinced by that. I think it's very plain that China does have a very clear strategic objective to become the primary power in East Asia and the Western Pacific. Now, there's a debate about whether its ambitions actually go further than that. That's an important issue in itself. But from Australia's point of view, the fact that China's, I think, clear and unsurprising ambition as its power grows is to establish itself as the primary power in its own region – in East Asia, in the Western Pacific. I think that is very significant for Australia because it is the first time in our history that we have faced the prospect that an Asian power will succeed, where the Japanese one might say failed in the 1940s, to establish uh, an Asian regional primacy in the Asian region. Ever since European settlement, uh, Asia has been dominated by Western powers, not just by Western powers, but by what we might call Anglo-Saxon powers, and, and our great mates... Britain and America. So I I think we we, we don't understand the strategic challenges we face unless we understand how different the power structure in East Asia is likely to be over the decades to come. And it's that perception which drives my argument that we need to rethink our defense policy from the ground up and motivates the prescriptions that I make later in the book.
1: In a recent article uh, for the Strategist blog, you argue that expensive wars in the Middle East have led to the US to withdraw from that region, and in your book you also state that US commitment to Asia is waning. Uh, Given that the US still bases fleets in the Persian Gulf and also in Japan and is expanding its footprint in Australia. What are the data points that you're seeing that suggest that the US is starting to withdraw or at least considering withdrawing from the region or anywhere in the world for that fact?
0: Yeah, no, really important point is right at the heart of my argument uh, that, that we can no longer continue to base our defense policies we've done for so long and the expectation that America will both remain the dominant power in Asia and therefore prevent any major power like China threatening Australia. And moreover, remain very committed to Australia's security so that if the first proposition fails and we do face a threat, America would come to our assistance. That, that, that Those really are the two assumptions on which Australian defence policy has been based for generations. And, and, and it's my um, lack of confidence that they will remain true, not just in the next year or two but 20 or 30 years from now because, of course, those are the timeframes that are relevant to our defence planning. It's my lack of confidence in that which drives me to ask the questions I'm asking in the book and provide the answers I provide. So what are my data points? Look, the most important data point is in some ways the simplest. Go to the, foreign, the, governments, the Australian government's foreign policy white paper of 2017 which, which contains in it Australian Treasury forecasts that by 2030, 11 years from now, China's economy will be $42 trillion and America's will be $24 trillion, near enough double. Now, that prediction might not turn out to be right precisely, but in broad terms, what that prediction tells us is that America, to preserve its position in East Asia, is going to have to confront a country that is much more powerful relative to the United States than any country the United States has ever confronted before, and that means that the costs and risks to America of resisting China's ambition, as we have discussed, to become the dominant power in East Asia, and to preserve its own strategic leadership, upon which our defense policy still depends, the costs and risks to the United States of doing that are going to be very high. And what I have never seen are US political leaders, or for that matter, US strategic thinkers. Mounting a compelling argument that the costs and risks to America of preserving U.S. primacy in Asia in the face of China's power and ambition as it is today and as we must prudently expect it to be in the decades to come. That America's, uh, America has the, the motives, the reasons, the purposes to sustain the costs and risks required to preserve its primacy in Asia in the face of that. And although, of course, you do hear when you go to Washington, when you go to Washington, you do hear all our friends and contacts in the within the beltway, talking about their commitment to preserve U.S. primacy in the region. What you don't hear is a sober assessment of what will be required, and a sober assessment of what that will cost, and a sober assessment of whether the American people are prepared to support that. And so that's the first data point. The second data point is Donald Trump. And it's not because of what Donald Trump is himself, although that's actually a pretty interesting part of the picture, he's got a good chance of being president for another six years, is what his presidency tells us about American politics. When Trump first went down that escalator uh, and, and launched his campaign back in 2016, one of the things that everybody said, all the experts said, was that Trump was unelectable in America. Because he was not committed to preserving America's leadership, and that the, the orthodoxy was that you simply could not be elected president, you couldn't, couldn't be taken seriously as a candidate, or win the favor of the electorate unless you were committed to preserving the the model of u.s global leadership which had come to the fore in the 1990s at the end of the Cold War and and everyone in Washington agreed with that including of course both sides of politics I mean this in, in a very p- partisan contested political culture this had been for a long time the one thing upon which both sides of the aisle agreed so you know you took Hillary Clinton for example and say John McCain as a quintessential classic Republican you couldn't put a cigarette paper between them on their view of how America should sustain its leadership uh, globally, including in Asia. But Donald Trump just proved that you don't have to sign up to that to become elected. And as we look now at what's happening, particularly on the Democrat side, the Democrats are mounting a major campaign to try and redefine themselves in a way that will deal with the Trump phenomenon. And we can see that in the extraordinary process now unfolding with the the sort of pre-primary primaries. But what's really striking is that amongst that Melbourne Cup field of people who are lining up to be the Republican, the, the Democrat candidate, none of them talk seriously about foreign policy. The few who have, like Biden, uh, Elizabeth Warren, she's given a speech on foreign policy. Pete Buttigieg has put, given a speech on foreign policy. None of these articulate a vision for America's global leadership, which looks anything like what we've seen in the past. And so I I think it's very unclear whatever the pundits within the beltway mates might say. I think it's very unclear that the American public, the American political system even, is sufficiently committed to preserving US leadership in Asia to be prepared to pay the higher costs and risks that confronting China are going to entail. And if that's right, and you don't have to be as gloomy as I am about that, you only have to be a little bit gloomy about that to recognize that the dangers for Australia of continuing to assume that the US plays the same old role in Asia under very different circumstances in the decades to come are quite high and that the smart thing for us to do is to at least start thinking about what we do instead. Now, this is hard for us because we've had the luxury of great and powerful friends like Britain and America ever since European settlement. So I'm not surprised that people find this a hard idea to get their head around. I I find it a hard idea to get my head around.
1: It's also scary as well.
0: It's scary. Absolutely. And I mean, and my book is not reassuring because I look, I I say if this is the case, if we can't be sure that America is going to continue to play this role, then we have to ask ourselves, what do we do instead? And if like me, you believe that you can't go out and just find another great and powerful friend, you know, as we did when the British, when British power faded, the Americans were thank god they 're to pick us up i don 't think we can assume that there 's going to be another great and powerful friend to take over from America, and that means we 're going to be on our own and on our own in a very different Asia which potentially contains more threats. So this is very scary and I don't find the conclusions I reach myself in the book at all reassuring, but I don't think this is a moment when it's a good idea to look away from the hard conclusions.
1: Mm. Of course, America isn't the only significant actor within the region. And looking at another rising power in the Indo-Pacific, albeit a much slower riser than China, but with better demographics, you don't see India as the great power balancer that will save us all from a tyrannical. China, which is pretty solid ground in my opinion. However, you do also say, and I quote from your book if China is content to leave India's backyard to India, there seems no reason why India should not leave China's backyard to China, especially given how hard it would be for India to challenge China there. But with China developing bases in in and around the Indian Ocean region. It has a base, for want a better term, in Djibouti. It has control of the Hambantota port in Sri Lanka. It's developing Gwadar in Pakistan, and we all know the whole string of pearls theory for the region. Secondly, we see a continuous deployment of Chinese naval vessels off the coast of Africa on anti-piracy operations, which have now provided them with years of experience in operating long distances from home. We've also seen Chinese submarines surface provocatively in in range of India, and we see huge amounts of Chinese investment along the Belt and Road Initiative in places like Africa, Middle East, and so on. China is currently dependent on energy resources that transit from the Middle East through the Indian Ocean into East Asia. And then even on top of that, we've still got CPEC running through Pakistan. We've got Chinese influence growing in Nepal, and China and India still have violent disagreement about their shared border. Is there really still a question as to whether China is content to leave the Indian Ocean region to India?
0: Well, um, uh, everything you say is right. China clearly has got a lot going on in the Indian Ocean. But there's a very big difference between China seeking to pursue the kind of interests and activities um, that you mention on the one hand and it's seriously seeking and achieving the same level of regional hegemony in the Indian Ocean that I believe it's seeking in the Western Pacific. And the reason for that is not that the Chinese wouldn't like it of course they would. But precisely because, as you say, India is a demographic behemoth. And although its economy continues to disappoint, uh, even at 5 and 6% per annum, it still ends up as the world's second biggest economy. Um, and eventually, of course, may well overtake China. But for the next, you know, say five decades, it's going to remain a very, very formidable power, an increasingly formidable power, and one which has the advantages of being the local power in the Indian Ocean, just as China has the advantages of being the local power in the Western Pacific. And for all those reasons, uh, it does seem to me that although I'm, I'm sure China has ambitions in the Indian Ocean region and in South Asia, I don't believe that China that any of those point to China having a clear determination to dominate the Indian Ocean the way it wants to dominate the Western Pacific. And if they have those ambitions, they're just making a big mistake. They're not going to succeed. At least they're not going to succeed unless the Indians completely collapse and let them. And although you know India is an erratic power, uh, I don't think it's so erratic that it's going to let the Chinese get away with that. Uh, and for that reason, uh, I mean, that's there's good news for Australia in some ways because I think the most likely trajectory for our region for the Indo-Pacific region, is that it's actually going to end up as two spheres of influence, with China being the dominant power in East Asia and the Western Pacific, and India being the dominant power in South Asia and the Indian Ocean. And the countries that lie on the line between them, which includes Australia, will be in the uncomfortable but diplomatically opportunistic position of being on the boundary between two spheres of influence. Now, living on a boundary like that is dangerous but profitable. And one of the prospects that we have is that we'll be able to use, if we play our cards right, we'll be able to use the the concern that both sides have that the other doesn't encroach on their sphere of influence to limit Either side's influence over the countries on the boundary, like Australia, I call this the Mongolian model of uh, strategic diplomacy. It's pretty scary, but it would be better than, for example, being a Vietnam, which is going to be squarely and I think very uncomfortably within a Chinese sphere of influence. So, uh, you know, there are there are prospects there. However, I don't think that means we just don't have to worry that we can rely on China and India to play one another off. I do think it reduces our strategic risk but doesn't eliminate them and it leaves Australia still with the challenge of working out how it can defend itself against a major Asian power. And Although we naturally focus on China and I think that's right in some ways. In the book, I, I use the phrase major Asian power a lot precisely because I don't want to focus the story just on China. It is going to be a China story, an India story, and also, just to complicate the picture, quite possibly, in the decades to come, Indonesia. Because one of the things we have to keep on remembering is that you know, us, Australians are very used to thinking about Indonesia in the strategic context, but we're used to thinking of it as a weak and idiosyncratic power. Now, m- maybe it will remain that, but the same arithmetic that tells us that China's wealth and power is growing tells us that Indonesia has a good chance of being the fourth biggest economy in the world well before the middle of the century. And an Indonesia that's that big economically is likely to be, not certain, but likely to be a much bigger strategic player and therefore a much more significant neighbor for Australia. All of those things, if you like, underpin the basic argument in the book that we need to go back and rethink the assumptions on which our defence policy is based.
1: In preparing for this podcast, I, I put the call out for questions on Twitter. and we, We've had a few people send their questions in. One of those respondents was Josh Edwards. and He's asking how you justify the premise of your book, which is restructuring the Australian Defence Force to defend itself without a great power partner. How do you explain the pressure that may come from China. Why, why would China actually want to invade Australia or put enough pressure on Australia to force us to structure our defense force the way you've put it in the book?
0: Yeah, look, it's a, it's a really good and important question. And the answer is, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that it will. And in fact, there are pretty good reasons to hope that it wouldn't. One is that is the question of how China... If you like, de- defines its aspirations as a regional hegemon. So say I'm right, and China ends up as the dominant power in the in the Western Pacific and East Asia. There are lots of different ways it can do that. It can follow what you might call the Joseph Stalin model, which is you know a sort of very harsh armed hegemony. And if so, then I think there'd be very good reason to fear that we'd face military pressure from from China. E- other,
1: even with such expansive distance between well, the two countries. Well, I was countries. going to
0: say the other fa- the other factor is distance, and that is that you know the fact that we're a long way from China does give us some natural advantages, but it's worth bearing in mind that those that, that distance is only an advantage if we make it an advantage. It's perfectly easy for China to stick a whole lot of capability on ships and sail it towards Australia if nobody's there to stop them. So the distance doesn't itself endow us with a strategic advantage. It, it, it endows us with an opportunity which we then have to take. And so I, I don't think the distance makes you know that much difference. But of course worth bearing in mind Ch- China might not end up like that. China might end up deciding to be a kind of a kind of gentler kind of hegemon. And, and you know, my model for that is actually the, the U.S. Monroe Doctrine in the Western Hemisphere. Now, you know, if I was Mexico, I might take a different view of this. But, the you know, viewed from afar, at least, it appears that for, you know, 200 and something years, ever since nearly 200 years, ever since the Monroe Doctrine was articulated in 1824, the United States has exercised very clear hegemony in the Western Hemisphere. But it hasn't Generally, done it by you know in, in invasion or or you know sort of very intense interference in the internal affairs of its neighbours. It's done it just by standing back, and when an issue r- arises that it's interested in, it reaches out and says, you know, this is what we want. It sets the rules by which things happen in the Western Hemisphere, but it doesn't interfere too much. Now, uh, China, which took that more modest view of hegemony might not be very threatening towards Australia at all so you could say that one of the ways in which we one of the choices we have to make today and we do have to make it today or you know in the next few years is how confident we are that if china does end up as a dominant power it turns out to be a kind of gentler kind of hegemon or a far more aggressive kind of hegemon and we just don't know the answer to that so it, it may well be that we could sensibly say let's hope for the best but if we're, the less confident we are of that, the more prudent it would be to take the kind of steps I'm talking about. It is hard for us to imagine, it's always hard for people to imagine that a country, that any country, would face a direct military attack it seems kind of an, an anachronistic and it doesn't happen very often but as I argue in the book the fact that it doesn't happen very often doesn't mean it doesn't happen sometimes
1: yeah I mean, like I'm sure the people in Ukraine and Georgia and some exa- other countries exa- exa- may.
0: Exa- exa- exactly and you know when we when we think about these issues we always tend to think about the world as it is so people we, we ask you know how secure is Australia and of course today Next five years we'd all agree that Australia is very secure. But the question is not just is are we secure today? It's what makes us secure, and how might those factors in our international setting change to undermine that security in the decades to come? And if we, we we argue that I would, that we've been very secure for a long time, because we have lived in an Asia which has benefited from the stabilizing presence of the United States, the stabilizing predominance of the United States, and the fact that China's own forces have been very weak. Well, both of those factors, I would argue, are changing, so we need to at least acknowledge uh, a higher risk.
1: Let's actually move on to the so what in your book now, the risk that you've just discussed and how we should confront it, and that's that Australia can only rely on itself for its national defence, and you cite four strategic objectives that Australia must achieve to do that. The first one is defend the continent, then there is secure the immediate neighbourhood, then support maritime Southeast Asia, and then preserve a wider Asian balance. Starting with defending the continent, can you please walk us through how you've decided that these are Australia's strategic imperatives for national defence?
0: Well, let me just go back half a step because the project I'm trying to undertake in the book, having identified this challenge, is to ask the question, well, if we can't depend on the United States, can we defend ourselves? And it's an important question to ask because Australians have been asking it for decades, centuries even, and they've always come up with the answer, no, we can't. And so the starting point for me for this book was to say, well, is, is that right? You know, that's what we always say, but is it, is it right that we can't defend ourselves? And so i have sort of trying to go back to a blank sheet of paper and say, well, what would we need to do First step is what will we need to do, then how would we do it, then what will we need to do those kinds of things, and how much would it cost? So sort of four-step logic. And exactly as you say, the first step is to say, well, let's try and define precisely what we'd need our armed forces to be able to do. And this is not new ground. I'm drawing on old ideas about Australian defence policy, none none the worse for that. And my starting point is that there's two kinds of broad things you want to do. The first is obviously defend your own territory directly from direct attack. That's kind of self-evident, but it's important to state. And the second is to prevent or try and prevent developments which would make a direct attack on Australia less unlikely, more likely or more serious. And you know, going back to what we were talking about before, we, we can identify all sorts of reasons why we feel so ast- secure in Australia today. And we ask ourselves, well, what kind of developments, not just at the very broad geopolitical level we were talking about before, but more specific strategic and uh, operational developments would make us feel less secure? And I identify three sets of – of of things there. One is uh, the basing of potentially hostile forces in our immediate neighbourhood, and that's an old idea in Australian defence policy it goes back to Alfred Deakin and before. The other is the intrusion, next is the intrusion of a potentially hostile major power into maritime Southeast Asia, and the third is the emergence of a regional hegemon in the Western Pacific region. And those seem to me to be the things, the defense of the continent itself and the management of those, what I call three strategic interests, seem to me to drive what I call our strategic objectives. That is the things we want our armed force to be able to do. But it's important to note, we don't want our armed force to be able to do them all equally. Defending Australia, that's something we must be able to do, I think, by ourselves independently. And it's the highest priority. The next one out, denying our immediate neighbourhood to a potentially hostile power is something that I also think we need to be able to do independently because nobody else really cares. Further out, when you get to maritime Southeast Asia, well, out there, we don't have to do that independently. So our strategic objective is to be able to do that in coalition with others. But because it's very close to us, we want to be able to make a major contribution. And then further out, preserving a strategic balance in the wider Asia Pacific. Well, that's something we'd only do, seek to do as part of a broader coalition in which we would be far from being the biggest power. And so you, what you get there is a concentric hierarchy of our priorities and that, that allows you to then go on and say, okay, well, if those are our, our strategic priorities, rather what kind of operations do we need to undertake to do them? And that, if you like, is the next step in the logic.
1: Right, and so before we move on, let's define some terms here. You use two terms throughout the book consistently, and that is denial and control. This is both in the air and in sea operations. Can you explain the difference between these two concepts and why this distinction is important when planning out defences? Yeah,
0: no, really, really important question because having defined those strategic objectives as I call them, I go in and try and identify the operational options, the kind of operations we'd need to undertake to do them. And in particular, I'm always looking for the most cost-effective kinds of operations. Usually in military affairs, there's a, a very wide range of ways in which you can achieve a strategic objective. You know, there are a lot of different ways you can defend Australia, and I talk about some of them in the book. So I'm hunting for the most cost-effective one because we can be sure that if we can defend Australia independently, it will only be just, You know, it's a very big task. So we need to do it as cost-effectively as we can. And uh, when we look at what's most cost-effective, we have we, we have to sort of start with the obvious but very important observation that we've got a fundamentally maritime strategic environment. It's not just that the continent is an island. It's also very importantly that all our neighbors are islands. And it's a very, an unusual feature of our strategic situation. And that means that for us, maritime operations are going to be central. So I then have a chapter which says, well, let's just step back from Australia's situation and look at the whole business of war at sea. And here this distinction that you've mentioned between denial and control becomes really critical. And I'll talk about maritime, which really embodies air and naval together. And maritime denial is the business of preventing other people projecting power by sea. And in order to have a significant impact on Australia, you need to project power by sea. In order to have a significant impact on our immediate neighbourhood or for that matter in maritime Southeast Asia, you have to project power by sea. And I contrast maritime denial with with maritime control. In order to project power by sea, you have to be able to control the maritime space to prevent the other guy attacking and destroying your power projection forces. Now, a really central argument in the whole book is that because of the trend of technologies, not just in the last couple of decades, but stretching right back to the late 19th century, maritime control has become very hard to achieve And maritime denial has become correspondingly easier to achieve. And right at the heart of that is a very simple and brutal proposition. Over the last century and a bit, it's become much easier to find and sink ships, and much harder to stop an adversary finding and sinking your ships. And that boils down to a straight factor of cost, that for a country, and this is very relevant to the US-China military balance at the moment, for America to project power by sea into the Western Pacific, as it's always traditionally done. It has to be able to fight off a Chinese, what the Americans call anti-access and area denial posture. It's just a classic denial posture. They have to defeat that Chinese posture. What the Chinese have shown in their very, I think, skillfully designed force development over the last couple of decades is that a relatively small investment in maritime denial forces can impose very big costs on the adversary's power projection. And so the secret for Australia is to exploit that asymmetry between denial and control. To focus our efforts, focus our operational efforts on preventing an adversary projecting power towards us or towards our neighbours by sea, uh, rather than trying to project power ourselves by sea. And that has huge implications for the kinds of operations we undertake and the kinds of forces we need, obviously.
1: Let's break it down now and and actually look at the three services, and let's have a look at your prognosis on how they should be structured. Now, I'm going to start off with the Army, and interestingly, as you've just framed, everything that you've discussed in the book points towards maritime operations and denying maritime space to any any other actor or any actor that's looking to invade Australia. And you've suggested that there is little reason for Australia to retain a capable and sizable army soldiers with personal weapons that is other than to influence an opponent's naval operations can you go into how that works
0: yeah look it's a very um it's a very important question and of course a very emotive one for Australians because although we have as i've mentioned perhaps the most maritime strategic environment of any country on earth we have a military tradition, and you might even go further and add a military national identity, which is very strongly focused on our army.
1: Oh, uh, that, the whole national myth revolves yes, around the. Yes, the whole. You know,
0: I mean, there's. You know, no, nobody. Well, pe- people do make a fuss about Coral Sea Day, but. That wasn't actually our battle. Um, You know, Anzac Day is Anzac Day for a reason. And I mean, and there is a reason why our land forces loom so large in our national imagination because they loom so large in our national history. And the reason for that is very plain. Australia has in its major power conflicts in the past, always been fighting as an ally to a major maritime power. And there are two things about major maritime powers. The first is they don't have very big armies. And so when they start a big war, what they look for are soldiers. So Britain in 1914 had a standing army of six divisions facing hundreds of divisions of German and trying to support hundreds of divisions of French. So that the British army was, was minuscule. It had the world's biggest navy by miles. So what did the British want from us in 1914? They wanted soldiers and that's what we provided. And the same was true in, in later wars. The, our, our allies have never looked to us as a maritime power Because they've always been dominant maritime powers themselves, they've looked to us to provide the land forces that they haven't had. The second thing that's been influential is that they've always been, both Britain and America in their turn, have always been the dominant maritime power. So we've always been very confident that they would provide the sea control, the maritime control, to allow us to deploy our forces overseas and get them home and support them. And that hasn't always worked out. The whole history of Australian forces being isolated in Ambon and so on, very important part of Australia's military history, quite an emotive part of Australian military history. And what went wrong there? We could not sustain the sea control required to sustain and withdraw those deployments. Now um, uh, I I think that strategy, mind you, made perfect sense, but it did mean that um, uh, Australia's strategic history has has, has moved out of whack with a strategic situation. Once we move from that back towards focusing on defending ourselves with our own forces, the maritime comes back into play. And once you start focusing on on a maritime defense of Australia, and particularly a maritime defense of Australia in an environment in which, in which power projection by sea is extremely hard because it's so hard to achieve the maritime control required to do it, then it's very hard to see a role for Australian land forces except in the defense of the continent itself. With one exception, and one important exception, which looms quite large in the way I think about the future of Army, are stabilisation operations in the immediate neighbourhood. Now, when we were talking before about our strategic objectives, we talked about de- a denying a, um, an adversary, a major power adversary um, basing in the immediate neighbourhood, and that is a really critical issue, but the other issue is stabilisation of the immediate neighbourhood. And Australia has always taken the view, and I think still does, and I think still should take the view that preserving and upholding stability in the immediate neighbourhood is an important strategic objective in its own right. That's not primarily a military task, but it is one to which the ADF has in the past, and I think in the future will make a contribution. I think actually the potential challenges we may face there are bigger than the ones we've faced in the past. So I do think that one of the things our army needs to be designed to do And is undertake stabilisation operations in the immediate neighbourhood. But the good news is that those are operations you can take in in uncontested waters. You're not gonna have to fight to achieve maritime control in order to undertake those deployments. But in any environment where you're operating against a major Asian power or even a very capable middle power who can successfully contest your control of the sea space, then I think the deployment and sustainment and withdrawal
1: one-size-fits-all seems like a good idea for clothes, until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com.
0: Of land forces becomes far too risky and not cost-effective. Risky because your chance of losing them are pretty high and it costs you a lot to try and protect them. Also, not cost effective because, in the end, the land forces that we can deploy and sustain are going to be too small to make a big strategic difference. Uh, You know, with the best will in the world, Australia is always going to have a pretty small army by Asian standards. And the question as to whether or not we can achieve decisive strategic results by deploying our small army independently seems to me to be very unclear. So, for all those reasons, I end up with an army which, apart from those stabilisation missions, is focused primarily on the defence of the continent. Now, one can make an argument that in defending the continent, you need to be able to not just make sure, do whatever you can to deny your approaches to an adversary so they can't get their forces ashore, but also to fight a substantial land battle on Australian territory if that's necessary. And I'm, I, I can see the argument for that. It's always nice to be able to have sort of two lines of defense, to have belt and braces, so to speak. But there's the classic risk there that you end up diffusing your effort, that you you, you by, have it, by trying to be strong at sea and strong on land, you end up being strong in neither. So I'm, I'm a big believer in focus of effort. So I think that instead of building up a second line of defense with a big army, you end up you should devote those resources to making the maritime line of defense as strong as it possibly can be. And then the second part of that is, well, um, how do you respond to an incursion onto our territory? And this is a problem that Australians have been wrestling with for a long time. Uh, We do face a big problem with that because of our size. The adversary gets to choose the time and place of of a lodgment, and our capacity to deploy a decisively scaled land force,s ready and equipped and backed up and supported to fight a relatively intense battle against a lodging force, is inhibited by the size of the continent and the paucity of the infrastructure in a lot of places. You know, if you're if you're Israel, you can do this stuff, but but I don't think we can. And for that reason, I think the principal approach we should take to to attacking a lodgment that occurs should be the use of air power, including missiles. Rather than trying to build a big army, uh, that I think is going to find it very hard to get to the right place at the right time. That all ends up with a role for army, which I know my many friends in army are going to find pretty unsatisfactory. Oh
1: yeah, I'm deeply offended myself well, as a soldier. Yeah, <laughs> no,
0: you wouldn't be surprised to hear uh, that you know I've had a number of conversations already with uh, old friends and colleagues from army who are you know well who don't. I, I have big reservations about the argument. Well, that, that's fine. I'm happy to hear the argument, but I would just make this point. The only credible basis for Australians to decide the forces they need in future uh, is, is to identify those forces that most cost-effectively deliver the operational outcomes, which in turn most cost-effectively deliver our primary strategic objectives. Now, if, if Army, well, Army or Army's friends can make a compelling argument that I'm wrong and that land forces are the most cost-effective way of achieving our decisive operational outcomes, then let's hear it. Let's have the debate. That's what we need to do.
1: You, you've also mentioned in the book that, that having a significant enough land force in Australia to defend the continent also uh, compels any invading yeah. force to send yeah. a yeah. larger yeah. fleet, which is yeah. going to be easier to attack. Yeah. At, no, so. no,
0: that's right. There is this. There is this very complex factor. It's fascinating when you study the history of of defending islands, which I've done a bit of. You know, done a bit of study on as a part of the process of uh, working on this book. You do end up with this sort of counterintuitive idea, which I do address in the book in some detail, that in order to make a country like Australia hard to invade, you have to make sure that the adversary has to bring a whole lot of stuff with him because it's the fact that he has to bring a whole lot of stuff with him that makes him vulnerable to your maritime denial posture. And uh, so you do need a certain minimum level uh, just in order to not look too defenseless. There's an old line from Bismarck when Bismarck was allegedly once asked what would you do if the British Army invaded the coast of Pomerania? And he said, well, I'd mobilise a constabulary and have them arrested because the British Army was so trivially small compared to Germany's vast continental force. And there's a kind of obverse of this. You know, you need to make sure that, that you've got more than a constabulary to arrest, in inverted commas, to respond to a lodgment. And that that itself does drive a fairly significant investment in land forces. I'm not, I, I actually am actually arguing in the book that the army needs to be bigger. And I describe my skepticism about some of the current proposals for things like Land 400, but I, I'm not saying we don't need an army, but I do think that when when in the balance of investment, I'm going to want to see us put as much as we possibly can into that maritime denial space.
1: You almost argue for a position where there should be some concept of almost a people's war like the old Chinese well, version well, in Australia. Well, I do,
0: I do. This is a fascinating question and one that I've, I've often found quite hard to wrestle with. But if you look at- true history and actually including some recent history like Iraq and you see what, what makes invading other countries daunting one is that the other side has a huge conventional army or you know strong conventional army which the product of you know traditional maneuver warfare can destroy the adversary's forces but the but the other is you just make the country ungovernable because any invading force has to do two things. And by inv- I mean we, there's a question about what an adversary's strategic objective would be. But just to think about invasion as the extreme case, they have to destroy the adversary's armed forces, and then they have to control the country. And the harder you can make it to control the country, the better. So I do think a cheap and cost-effective backstop is to cultivate the idea of a kind of a people's resistance. And uh, I mean, my my old friend and colleague and former Army Reservist, uh, Dr. Mark Thompson, has written a bit about this idea. And I, my thinking about this has been a bit influenced by Mark's thinking. And so uh, I do, as you say in the book, suggest that in thinking about our land posture, we want to think beyond the sort of traditional conception of a you know formal armed force, you know, with a bit of a concept of the people's war behind it. I mean, that actually is what exactly what Mao had in mind.
1: Does this suggest that we would we should actually look at having a larger reserve force rather than a standing army?
0: Uh, uh, I wouldn't go so far as that. I I don't touch on the reserves very much in the book, and I was tempted to spend a fair bit of time on it, but the book was getting a bit long. I see reserves as a way of sustaining your conventional forces, and and I think there are circumstances in which they can be very cost effective. Whether they're cost effective for us in our circumstances is to me a little bit less clear. It depends a lot on what kind of skills you're trying to have and, and and how they can be most cost effectively inculcated. Reserves make a lot of sense in a, in a country that has a, a broadly based conscription process because it means that the, within the population you have a large number of people who have already gone through a couple of years of full-time military training. In our environment, I think it's a a bit bit less clear. But no, the model I have of of the sort of people's war thing is is much less structured and much less expensive than that. I'm very parsimonious. I don't want to spend too much money on these things because in the end, this is a backstop. The primary line of defense is the maritime sphere and that's where i'd like to see the money spent
1: and that's where we're going to go right now and it's it's really where the controversy in your book kicks in you've got a naval force structure that is very different to the expensive beast that we're investing in today uh, you, you want to pull out of the sub deal that we have now with France and look for a new design you want to sell our massive shiny new amphibious vessels uh, for a couple of smaller ones and you want to scrap some of the larger most expensive programs that we've got today for a completely different force. Could you go into that for me? Because I'm going to let you take the lead on this discussion because this is where most of the discussion is really going to focus uh, uh, on.
0: Oh, yes. This is, um, this is a very um, contentious issue. So from, from Navy's point of view, the good news is that I put a very strong emphasis on maritime defense. The, the bad news is I think we're, we're building completely the wrong Navy for the task. And to put it very simply, um, the Navy we're building at the moment is focused on sea control as a prerequisite for power projection and so we have built these big amphibious ships. The big amphibious ships then, I think, become the center of a, what's essentially a power projection military strategy. So if you ask, and it's, we're making the point that our defense organization, our governments are not very explicit about these things. Um, and I don't think they've necessarily thought them through very carefully, but if you ask yourself, you know, what is the military strategy that Australia is developing at the moment to respond to the more contested strategic era in Asia, which everyone agrees we're now, we're now entering, I, I think the answer is we're building up our capacity to project land power by sea in major conflict situations in support of the United States. Well, I'm very unsure about the supporting the United States side of the thing, but I'm also very unsure about the idea that projecting land forces by sea is a credible operational option in an era when uh, sea denial is so easy and sea control is so hard. And so I don't and the, uh, It's not that I don't think we need an amphibious capability, I do because I think we need to be able to undertake those stabilization operations in the South Pacific and for that matter beyond, which have been so important in the last couple of decades and which I think will continue to be important. But I'm completely unpersuaded that two very big amphibious assault ships are the most cost effective way of doing those operations. I think two ships is too few and I think those ships are much bigger than we need. When I looked at this issue back when I was still in the department, I reached the conclusion that the optimal outcome was a fleet of something like five ships that are closer to the size of menorah and kanimbla around the 10,000, eight 000 to 10,000 ton mark, or possibly three of those and a couple of fast catamarans of the kind that we used, for example, in East Timor.
1: Which is an interesting story for me because I'm an ex- I'm a former paratrooper. Oh, yes. I was trained okay. to insert by air, yes. yet the operation that I did go yeah. on I went on a fast cat. You went on a fast cat, yeah.
0: Well, you know, I, I, I lived through that in much more comfortable circumstances than you, I'm afraid. But it was very interesting for me to see how useful and effective those cats turned out to be. Now, you know, I, I've heard the lectures from the Naval officers in the mess about uh, sea keeping for cats and all the rest of it. I, I, I buy the argument about their limitations, but I, but I do think they provide some very useful operational opportunities and, and it's partly the diversity. There are some circumstances in which a cat is a really useful thing to have and some where they're not. That's why I'd have a mix of conventional holes in cats. But numbers is really critical. One, one thing that a, a few years on the fifth floor of R1 teaches you, uh, in defence, is that when something starts going pear-shaped in the region, the first thing you ask is, well, where are the amphibious ships? And if you've only got two of them, Murphy's Law absolutely guarantees that one of them will be in refit and the other will be on a goodwill visit to San Francisco, and you won't have anything available. With five ships, you've got a very good chance of having at least one ship close to hand and ready to go at any one time, and that is, I think, a really critical... A really critical thing. Being able to move quickly in those situations can make all the difference. So my starting point is we shouldn't be focusing on power projection. We should be focusing on preventing other people projecting power by sea against by sea against us. And I think for that surface ships become a reliability rather than an asset. A surface ship in a highly contested maritime environment is gonna put an awful lot of work into defending itself and is not gonna make anything like a proportional contribution to attacking the other guy. The cost effective means of finding and sinking an adversary's ships, which is the core task. Uh, First of all, aircraft, well, land-based missiles, really close in, but you hope they didn't get that close. Aircraft, and, and perhaps including unmanned aircraft, and submarines at longer range. And so I would end up with a Navy that has a lot more submarines than we are planning at the moment and a lot fewer surface ships. It's not that we don't need surface ships, but I think ships that are smaller and simpler and cheaper like the Anzacs, which I think have ended up being a very good balance. I would replace the eight Anzacs with eight Anzacs, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't be building big and very expensive future frigates or anything like that because they are designed for achieving sea control. And I think no matter how much money we spend, we're not going to be able to achieve sea control to a significant degree, to a sufficient degree, to enable us to deploy expeditionary forces in high-level conflicts securely enough to make it a, a credible operational proposition. And that being so, I think these are going to end up being expensive white elephants. So the good news is that we're going to end up, if you, if anyone follows my suggestions, we'll end up with a lot more submarines. But the bad news is we'll end up with a lot fewer surface ships.
1: So let's get on to the submarine issue. You are not a fan of the current contract. You're also not a fan of the elongated process that it took to get us into that contract, and you would like to scrap it, and you would like to design a different sub designed for different roles, and maybe even constructed here or bought off the shelf. Can you take us through some of that thinking?
0: Yeah. Look, it's a a really critical project. I think submarines are a really critical capability for us because of their critical role in in uh, maritime denial operations, and I think the way we're going about it at the moment is endangering the viability of our submarine capability. And right at the heart of it is the fact that I think in looking for a really mega long-range conventionally powered boat, which needs to be very big, bigger than anything the world has ever seen before in a conventional submarine. We are chasing operational characteristics which are not essential to our operational priorities at the cost of very high price tag, very long delays, and very big technical risks. So I think what we need to do is to de-risk, reduce cost, and reduce schedule. We do need a big boat if we can get one. And my very simple approach is that we at the moment, own and operate. uh, One of the biggest conventional submarines in the world, the Collins. It had its teething troubles, we all know, but it's a very good boat. And it's the boat we know better than any other in the world. And so it seems to me by far and away, the least risky way of acquiring a submarine of the scale we need is to evolve the Collins submarine. I don't think we should start from scratch. In fact, I think the idea of starting again from scratch, which emerged in the early 2000s was a Big mistake, and some of, one of the reasons for our present problems. What we need to do is to take the present Collins, evolve the design, start building them very quickly. I think you know we we probably need to have two production lines running at once. A- and I do look at a very big fleet. I, you know, we have six, fle- six subs at the moment. The present uh, government plan is to acquire 12 subs to replace them. Um, I think we need at least 24 and possibly 32. That's a, lo- a lot of subs. It's, it's a lot of subs, but, um, and, and it's very different from the, from the force we've known. And I'm conscious that people will sort of rock back in their chairs and say, well, that's pretty weird. But the fact is, we are talking about having an ADF with a completely different task. So we shouldn't be surprised that it ends up looking different from the one we've known. And uh, the arithmetic is perfectly simple. Well, actually it's quite complicated, but the the bottom line is simple. You only get a very small proportion of your total submarine fleet in the key area of operations, particularly for Australia because of very long transit times, because we have to operate a long way forward and the the arithmetic i I put in the paper, which doesn 't pretend to be highly precise by any means but it 's you know in broad order of magnitude terms i think it's it 's pretty uncontestable is that a fleet of tw- of, of, of even a fleet of twenty four boats would only see us have six submarines in the key on station in the key operational areas at any one time. Feet of thirty-two would see us have eight submarines. Now, for me, the key operational areas of the archipelago across our north. I don't think it's pr- taking subs right up into the uh, East China Sea. Uh, the Collins are easily long-range enough to do that. And if you ask yourself, how many subs do you need deployed on station to provide a really significant barrier to an adversary projecting power by sea towards Australia? Bearing in mind how many different choke points there are across that archipelago. Six doesn't look too many to me, particularly because you also have to always remember that you don't necessarily end the conflict with the same number of subs you began it. You know, We do have to pay careful attention to the reality that you take losses in war. And so it's no good having a force that looks adequate on day one when with the best will in the world, it would be prudent to expect 25%, 30% attrition. And so I, I think, you know, frankly, I think a, a force of 12 subs is manifestly insufficient to achieve an independent defense posture for Australia with a maritime denial strategy. And that's why you come to this very... I agree, rather surprising and disconcerting conclusion that you need a much bigger fleet. As I say, the good news is there's a lot of money to be saved by not buying the surface ships that we don't need for the maritime controls, power projection posture, which I think is impractical and not cost effective.
1: And looking at the Air Force, you're keen to see a large expansion in the Air Force, but in a very changed role. You want to create the Air Force in support of the maritime domain, however, you want to do away largely with our anti-submarine warfare role for a strike role. Could you go into how the Air Force will be designed around
0: that, role? Yeah, no. Well, it's a very important point. Again, I don't see a very high priority for anti-submarine warfare because I don't plan for us to have any ships at sea. Now, of course, submarines are very effective anti-submarine platforms, and so it's not as though we can afford to ignore ASW altogether. But I've always been struck by how hard anti-submarine warfare is, how much money you can spend without giving yourself much chance of finding the adversary's submarine. So I'd spend a lot of money on ASW, particularly around our own submarine bases. But I think the idea of having broadly based anti-submarine warfare Operations ends up not being cost effective if you're not trying to achieve sea control. And that's one of the reasons I want to abandon sea control is because I don't want to be able to have to spend a whole lot of money on anti-submarine warfare. What we do need to put a lot of money into is air operations, whether crewed or uncrewed, to find and sink adversary ships. That's that's a very you know simple, direct, urgent focus of my thinking about our maritime posture. And aircraft have a key role in that, within range of land-based air power, aircraft are by far and away the most cost-effective way of achieving that. I'd be very happy to see that happen with um, uncrewed aircraft as much as possible. But I, I, I suspect that crude aircraft are going to play a big part in the picture for a long time to come. So I'd have a very big emphasis on maritime strike and patrol but uh, functions, anti-surface striking control, rather than an ASW. The other thing, though, is that in order to conduct those sorts of operations, you also need to have air control. You need to be able to prevent the adversary from preventing you using the air for that maritime patrol and strike purpose. You therefore do have to have, I think, a pretty substantial air combat capability for the classic you know, Air Force air supremacy battle. Now, whether you want to fight that air to air or whether you want to do it by attacks on bases and so on is an important operational question in itself. I'm saying you need a bit of both. But again, if you do the arithmetic and you say, okay, well you know if we say we had the, you know the present maximum view that government has is we'd aim for a frontline fighter force JSF or whatever of a 100 aircraft. There's nothing sacred about that number, it was sort of you know plucked from the air. And when you look at it, again it's a question of, of, of numbers and in, in particular in that case of, of breadth of operations. We'd have to operate in at least three key operations across Australia's north. You'd be very lucky to have more than a handful of aircraft in each one of those three locations available continually from a fleet of 100. You have to take account of the probability of of attrition in combat. And so I end up saying we're going to need more like 200. And of course, we always want to be very careful. We're talking here about platforms. What's important is the systems, the crewing, the basing, the the, the air refueling and the AEW and C aircraft. Uh, that whole structure has to come in behind it. This, it's a, so it's a it's a bigger and much more powerful air force than we're looking at at the moment. But again, I make the same point I made before in relation to submarines. We have a defense force that's designed to do a pretty small job in a very secure region in support of a very powerful ally. If we look at living in a less secure region without the support of that very powerful ally, we should expect our air force to look very
1: different. Talking about warfare looking different, in the book you don't see cyber as a pivotal capability for either side. If one side has the power to shut down cities and electricity grids and so on, then so does the other side. So it becomes a stalemate. You also claim that the third offset is dead. And for those who aren't steeped in military and defense jargon, in strategic and historical terms, uh, the US has used technology to offset its opponent's quantitative advantage. The first offset was nuclear weapons. And when the Eastern Bloc developed their own nuclear deterrent, stealth and precision guided munitions were developed to defeat the Soviet's superior numbers. The call uh, has been made to develop the third offset in order to defeat the potential size and might of the People's Liberation Army of China. Your position, Hugh, is that the third offset is dead, mainly because there's not so much discussion about it or fanfare about it anymore. In your book, you don't seem to see much of a future or you don't discuss a role of, say, space technology and and weaponizing that theater. You don't discuss things like swarm warfare, directed energy weapons, battlefield AI, robotics, tactical augmentation, and so on. And these are some of the capabilities that potential opponents are developing now and you you've also shied away from putting a big focus on r&d for australia to to gain some kind of technological edge you even indicate that the defence science and technology group may even need to take a bit of a haircut and slim down a little so the force structure that you've designed in this book for the coming decades seems to rest only on current technologies are we at risk of developing a defence force to fight the last war instead of the future war?
0: Yeah, look, it's a really important question and as you say, I, I make an attempt to wrestle with this question in the book. Let me just touch on the cyber thing very briefly. Um, it's not that I don't think cyber is a big deal, I think it is, but I, what I'm trying to address is the view that you sometimes hear put that that future wars will be cyber wars. I think that's way too optimistic. Um, I, I think it's it's as yet unclear what kind of strategic effect, what kind of effect on the conduct of nations cyber attacks of various sorts have. And I think it's easy to under, overestimate their strategic impact, just as we overestimated the, the impact of, uh, of area bombing, of city bombing in the decades before the Second World War. People thought it would w- render war obsolete. No, nope. in fact, it didn't make much difference, at least not until they dropped nukes on Japan. Um, and And I do think that that uh, the the leap to cyber is going to be a more difficult strategic choice, because, as you say, I think it 's an area in which um, attack is easy, defense is hard, vulnerability is mutual, and in any environment like that, um, I think mutual deterrence ends up emerging pretty spontaneously, so maybe it won 't and i 'm not saying we should we shouldn 't spend money on it, but it 's also worth bearing in mind that uh nobody's yet found ways to spend really huge sums of money on, on cyber. Um, it's actually, compared to submarines and, and fast jets, it's pretty cheap stuff. So by all means, spend it. But I think we'd be way too optimistic to think that if we've got a really snazzy cyber system, with, uh, cyber attack capability, we're not going to need ordinary old-fashioned kinetic warfare. Now, the next question, of course, is how does the technology of that evolve? So there's a couple of points. The first is, I do think there's potential for significant technological breakthrough. But it's—I'm very struck by how unclear those—that scope is. The fact that people talk about it, the fact that people have, you know, three-letter acronyms for it, doesn't in itself mean something's happening. You know, I, ha- I wear the campaign ribbons for the revolution of military affairs of the 1990s, which went nowhere. So, maybe AI is going to make a big difference. Maybe swarm weapons are going to make a big difference. And I, when I say that, I don't, I don't mean to be skeptical. Maybe they will. Mm-hmm. And if they do, then we're going to have to do something about it. But I don't think we can today design a force around that. And if we say, well, we can't design a force because we don't know what future technology is going to be, so let's hold off, well, we'll, we, we'll get stuck. I think we have to design a force on the basis of the best understanding we have of the actually operational, operationally available military capabilities today and keep our eyes open for what happens in the future. I also think, regretfully, that we have to be realistic about our chances of, d- of developing those technologies ourselves. It would be nice to think that Australia had the independent capacity to develop uh, really cutting edge revolutionary military technologies, but the fact is that we haven't done that for a very long time. I mean, When people try and talk about Australia's contribution, we still talk about NALCA. NALCA dated back to the 1970s. We, we haven't done it for a long time. I think there's no reason to expect that we should and we have to be very cautious about throwing money in that direction if we're not really serious about it. So I I think our best bet is to try and extract as much as we can from the the technologies developed by others. Now, getting access to those technologies is a major deal, as I say in the book, but I think our chances of developing bright new things all by ourselves, we have to be realistic about that. They're not I wouldn't want to bet Australia's future defense on it.
1: Yeah. So before I roll into my final question for the podcast. I want to state for listeners that there is a whole chapter in the book that I have deliberately avoided, and that is the chapter about whether Australia should develop its own nuclear deterrent. There's a very specific reason why I'm avoiding this, and that's because it is a very complex argument, and it is one of the most important arguments that any country can have when it's deciding how it will defend itself. And so partly because I don't want to give away the whole plot line of uh, Hughes' book, (laughs) but also... This this is a whole discussion in and of itself. Podcasts can only go for so long. This is an issue that requires you to read the book because it's a very specific argument. I read that chapter three times myself in preparing for this pod and I still decided that that's a whole discussion in and of itself. So I do encourage you to look at that because that is one of the discussions that's going to crowd the airwaves as everyone's talking about this book. So read that for yourself and feel free to send him some more questions and maybe we'll we'll, uh, get Hugh in for part two. I do have to apologize to uh, Wesley Morgan and my colleague also named Hugh that I haven't been able to involve your questions in this podcast, uh, mainly because there's just been so much to talk about. So I do apologize, but I encourage others to send in further questions that we may put to Hugh in a part two of this podcast. But to get to the final question... All of this restructuring of defence is extremely expensive, and it's a question that you have not avoided in the book. It is a theme that runs throughout the whole book, is how do we divide up the resources that we have to best defend Australia? And you're basically saying that we, at a minimum, have to expand our defence spending from around about 2% of GDP to 35 possibly even 4%. You also don't avoid the argument of whether GDP is the right measure, but the bottom line is is that you're saying that we need to spend a shit ton more on defense to be able to defend the nation. How does a government convince a tax paying public to pony up such a large amount of money when there is no clear and present danger for them to point to?
0: Yeah, look, it's a really important question, Chris. And as you say, right at the heart of my analysis, and I'm kind of you know betraying my my origins as a civilian defence official here, you know, the dollar is always there, and uh, and you have to ask yourself, well, what's the most cost-effective way of doing this? I think what I've, that's what I've attempted to design. And even if it's the most cost-effective way of doing the task, the task is much bigger, and so it's going to cost us a lot more. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. It's worth remembering that Australia's relative strategic economic weight in asia is declining too long after the 1987 white paper was uh, hit the streets it was still the case that australia's economy was the same size as china's and india's so you know we are we are in an environment where our own relative level of gdp is is much lower than others and so we shouldn't be surprised that we have to spend a larger share of our gdp to secure anything like the same level of security it's, and it's a straight question and I pose the question, the last chapter of the book is called Choices. I think it is up to Australians to decide whether they decide on the basis of things we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, whether the risks to Australia from major Asia powers in future decades are high enough to warrant spending the kind of money we'd need to spend to be able to respond effectively to such threats militarily. And uh, it's a lot of money. It's an extra, in current dollars, it's an extra $30 billion a year. Now it's not unthinkable that we could do that. In the 1950s, our average GDP share of defense spending was 3.4%. In the 1960s, it was 3.1%. So we spent that kind of money in decades when Australia's region was hotly strategically contested and we felt that we needed to do a lot to try and manage that. So I don't think it's out of the question that Australia could go back to spending that kind of money. Now, leaving aside the potential to save money by spending less on other things, I ask, well, what would be involved in just raising taxes to do it? And one way of looking at that is, at the moment, we're the eighth lowest taxed member of the OECD, a tax taker's proportion of GDP. We're the eighth from the bottom of that list of 36 OECD countries. If we added another $30 billion to the tax take, we'd be the ninth lowest taxed. So we would still be a relatively lowly taxed country by OECD standards. Now, I'm not myself necessarily saying we must spend 3%, 3 3.5% of GDP. I am saying that if we want to be able to defend ourselves independently, we have to do that. And in the end, as you say, it's a big political task whether Australian politicians can convince the Australian electorate that that's necessary. Well, the way democracy works is that hard choices are explained to the electorate by political leaders. And the the miracle about democracy is sometimes it works. You know, sometimes countries really can transform themselves, do things that they don't really want to do because they realize that it's better than the alternative. And it's a test for Australian political leadership. And I might say the sort of intellectual leadership that comes from the broader policy community, whether the Australian electorate can be persuaded of that or not. And that starts with where we began this podcast. The question is, well, what judgments do we make about our future in Asia? If I was as sure as a lot of other people seem to be that America is going to still be the dominant power in Asia and Australia's reliable ally 30 years from now, I wouldn't myself think we should spend three and a half percent of GDP on defense. But because I'm pretty unsure about that, I think we have to look at this issue very carefully.
1: Yeah, well, let's hope we get some political leadership rather than just politicians that can uh, help us answer these questions. Yeah,
0: well, well, that's, that's a subject for a whole different
1: podcast. That's right. So for me, the strength of this book doesn't lay only in its relevance for the discussion between policymakers and how Australia can defend itself in the coming decades. It also forms a guide for the students of today in geopolitical defense and strategic thinking. It displays the influence that geography and proximity along with the oceans and islands and other geographical features have on our ability to reach out and touch each other in the world, but also how technology interacts with and changes the way we approach physical constraints. It also reminds us of the tyrannical hold economics has on ambition And that resources are finite and that there is a cost to every decision that we make. It also reminds us that there are moral considerations on how we approach the defence of Australia. And again, I would point to your chapter on whether Australia should develop a nuclear deterrent, which I'm sure will probably make up part two of this podcast in the coming months. But for me, this book sits next to other Australian must-reads, like Alan Gingell's recent book on the fear of abandonment, and I would recommend it to everyone who is charged with and even just interested in the defence of Australia. So, Hugh, I thank you for writing this book. I thank you very much for my copy, and thanks for joining us today on the National Security Podcast.
0: Well, a great pleasure, Chris. Thanks very much. I really enjoyed it.
1: So a big thanks to Professor Hugh White. Hugh has been a very prominent figure in Australia for a number of decades in thinking about the defence of the nation. He has always had a very clear and deep thinking approach, not one that everyone always agrees with. I myself am not as sold on the idea that China will become this predominant power throughout the region. For me, China is a very fragile empire that has numerous fault lines running through its system and its structure, not unlike most empires, not unlike most major players in the world. But for me, it's not a direct line that China's economy is going to continue to grow to the point where it will become the regional hegemon. However, if I was a policymaker charged with the decisions on how we would defend our country and how we would ensure our national security, I wouldn't necessarily be taking the risk that, hey, well, China may not become that great power in the future, so we can relax. Of course, you're going to take a risk-based approach. And that is the approach that Hugh has taken with this book and his contribution to the national discussion. And if you would like to contribute to this discussion, you can do so as well. You can hit us up on Twitter at @apps. Policy Forum or at NATSEC Pod. You can hit us up on our Facebook group at Policy Forum Pod or you can drop us an email using podcast at policyforum.net. I am pretty sure that there is going to be a part two to this podcast and I would say that it's going to come in a couple of months. Maybe Hugh's had a bit more time to think on some of the feedback. We will likely discuss considerations around Australia developing its own nuclear deterrent. If you've got any questions on that feel free to hit us up as well thanks very much for listening to this special edition of the national security podcast and we'll speak to you again soon